You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good freezing morning, podcast listeners. How are you? Glad to be with you today. You know, they tell you a couple of things in podcast school, which I didn't attend, but they do tell you these things, I'm sure. They tell you it's not radio, so do not talk about the day, do not talk about the time, do not talk about the weather. Because these podcasts live on and on, and people listen to them later, and it can be very confusing. But I'm here to tell you, I need to talk about the time and the weather. The time is now, and the weather is freezing. It has been cold for days, and I'm looking here at the forecast. Let me read a random series of numbers to you. These are the projected highs for the next four days. 12, 7, 3 three, and then it shoots up to five. Okay. If it's going to increase at two degrees a day, we could be freezing for weeks. Like this is just nuts. Uh, Kids have not missed school, which I guess is a good thing, depending if you're a kid or a parent, but it is really cold. I don't know if I've made that clear. I feel like I have. Anyway, special guest teaching today. Uh, Last week at the bridge, I invited Daniel Grenz to speak into some things. Daniel and Carla have been with us from the very beginning when we just started out with a group of friends fasting and praying. Has great insight into the season we're in and also some lessons from Joseph. So this will be a two-parter, starting out a little bit abruptly because someone, that would be me, forgot to hit record. When I'm not speaking, I'm only kind of half there. But I was there by the time he was done. I think you will be too. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Spiritually, changes in spiritual seasons are marked by a change in climate, and that demands a response in, in what we're wearing, what we're walking in, and how we're living. Because God invites us to move with Him from one season to the next. And, and the challenge is that if we fail, And Randy said this in many different ways over the past year, but if we fail to discern the season that we're in, we get caught left trying to hang on tightly to something that is no longer applicable or no longer matters in this season. We get caught up um, looking backwards in a way that actually minimizes the fruit, the increase that God wants to bring us in the season we're leaning into. And, And... and so we get caught in kind of this tension of like, we're, we're longing either for the good old days, which a friend of mine I heard recently says that nostalgia can be a very generous editor. You know, we, we long for the good old days because everything was better then, or we're just in this quick hurry to get onto the better things that are still coming. And, and what I want to say this morning is that I feel like this season of challenge, this season of of so many things being, you know, the, the quote, unprecedented, that it's actually such an incredible gift from the Lord if we will see it rightly and lean in to what he has for us. It goes without saying, but I'll say it again, that 2020 was a major shift in seasons. It, it was an incredible turning of events in the activity of God on the earth and whether we've liked it or not, a shift in how we go about lives. You know, there, there's some, some of the shifts was like, we have to do it because we're forced to, because of 
shelter in place orders or whatever um, because of limits on gathering space. But I believe that there's also shifts that, that, that we can look at with deep hope and excitement. Um, and, and I'll unpack some of that as we go this morning. But as we think about this season that we're in, as we think about just the, the difficulty, the, the, the crisis moments, I mean, I could spend the whole hour just recapping this past year because so many pivotal and impacting moments were upon us in 2020 into 2021. But, but I believe that we are just scratching the surface, that, that we're just getting to the peak of the hill, so to speak, where we look at the horizon, which I believe is gonna be the most pivotal hour in human history, where the end time events that we read about and many of you have studied out over decades, where we see these things begin unfolding before our very eyes. You know, in Matthew 24, which I would say, take time, sit in Matthew 24 and 25. You know, Jesus talks about how there's seasons leading to his return and the initial one is called the beginning of birth pains. I feel like we're at that precipice where there's these, these movements in the earth, in the spirit realm, that we're going to see the things that for several thousand years followers of Jesus have longed for and they put their hope in. It's going to happen in our lifetime or in the very least in the lifetime of our children and grandchildren. And, and I would just say three things. My, my message is not about this this morning, but... I'm so passionate about what's to come and, and being part of a generation that moves into greater wholeheartedness for Jesus and greater understanding of the hour to live accordingly. But I would say we're, we're on the horizon where we're gonna experience the greatest outpouring of the spirit that we've ever known that would surpass even the days of Acts. I mean, you read the book of Acts, it's like, what in the world? Like handkerchiefs healing people, shadows healing people, it's, it's unreal. But I believe we're going to see an even greater outpouring of the Spirit and in tandem with the greatest depth of love for Jesus that the church has ever known. I believe that's the first thing. Second, I believe we're going to experience the greatest harvest of souls the earth has ever known. That the gospel is going to go forth in power in places where there may have been laborers and there may have been evangelistic efforts for hundreds of years. But in the days and years to come, there's going to be such power on the word that it's going to turn upside down even the most resistant corners and nations of the earth. But simultaneously, I, I believe we're going to experience the greatest increase of crises in the earth. You know, the rage of Satan and, and the effects of sin and the judgments of God, kind of all of these colliding together uh, in an hour, again, that Jesus says labor pains. The earth, Paul says in Romans 8, is groaning under these things. And so my question this morning as we look at seasons is that could it be that the events of 2020 and especially the church's response to those events with, I would say this personally for my life, I think for many of you, you'd agree that we've prayed and fasted more than we ever have in our lives. I mean, I, I know of three long fasts that in some form or another, many of us partook in. And, and so the events in the natural combined with the church's awakening in prayer and fasting, could it be that we were experiencing a spiritual contraction, you know, a labor pain, a pressure that was meant to prepare 
just like in the natural, I, I probably know more than I, I would have ever thought or wanted to about birth because my wife is a doula and a birth assistant and potentially going to go into midwifery. And I'll use this time to give a little plug and say in part as well, because we're preparing for another birth in our family. Baby number five is on the way. Um, just had to throw that in there before I forgot. Um, Carla is 14 weeks just about so this summer. So, so just thinking about natural birth, but then looking at this season, it's like there's so many parables, so, so many parallels about how this hour that we're in of pressure, of contracting, is for the purpose of strengthening muscle to bring forth a birth that the Lord wants to bring forth through his people. And, and so could it be that we're in that hour to birth not just the return of the Lord, but these, these unprecedented levels of revival, of awakening in America and in the nations. And, and so I want to look at this idea of birthing just briefly as we start. Um, in John 16, I'll just read this. If you're taking notes, you can jot it down. But the scripture, I, I was digging into it this week, and there's dozens of analogies that the Lord uses to birth when he's talking about bringing things forth. Isaiah has three or four passages. Micah uses this analogy several times. And then Jesus in John 16 himself, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will, re will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. And without getting into all of the details, in general, Jesus in this passage, he links the birthing process with a good and right grieving a good and right groaning for something that we do not yet see. And, and I really believe what he's doing is he's pulling in Joel's message in Joel chapter 2, this call in, in, the, in the days of an unprecedented crisis, this call to gather together, to pray, to fast, to weep and to mourn by saying that this, this groan and fasting and prayer and weeping and mourning that you're embracing is actually a birthing process to bring forth the purposes of my heart. And, and I think the challenge of this whole thing is like, man, didn't we do that in 2020? Can't we like move on to something else in 2021? And, and I would say this, I, I was just like, I, cause I feel that way to be very honest. It's like, Lord, I don't know if I, <laughs> just to be super, super vulnerable. I don't know if I can fast as much in 2021 as I did in 2020. Like, I don't know if I have the stamina to carry these intense and, and, and heavy measures. Um, and, and I just think of that passage in Matthew. Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, and he links this idea of, he, he says to the people listening, you know, this generation, like we played the wedding song, you didn't dance. We played the, the funeral dirge and you didn't mourn. And it, it's, it's really... We're at that moment where we need to learn how do we rejoice and find exceeding delight and rest and excitement in the wedding song born out of love for Jesus. 
And how do we at the same time simultaneously sustain our hearts with the joy, but also to embrace in that Joel 2 call to weep and to fast and to mourn. And, and I'm not going to talk about that. If you have ideas, I'd love to hear how to do it. <laughs> no, but, but we'll get in. We'll, we're not going to get into that today. Uh, but, I, but I believe that's one of the, the wrestles that we're in is it is still a moment to lean into Joel 2 as a lifestyle. Um, but it's also the time where we learn how to find continued renewal in his beauty and in his love. And so the, the, last, the last part I want to say on this season of birth, um, I, I believe that there's three distinct birthings that are going to come forth from this season of labor. The first one, I believe, a sending out of laborers. And, and I so appreciate, I think I saw his name on the call earlier, I so appreciate Steve's Wednesday night messages about deployment um, and, and just even the distinction between not only being a discipleship church, but an apostolic church where people are sent out from. I believe that one of the purposes of this past season is to dislodge many, and, and I will say specifically young people, from the disillusionment of the pursuit of the American dream that many other generations have locked into, to this place where there's a, there's a newfound release and freedom to be launched unto the nations of the earth. I believe we're coming into a very significant hour where we're going to see another massive mission-sending movement from America. And, and I think it's going to happen from many other places. But I believe in, in our nation and even in this community that we're part of with the bridge, that the, the hickeys have pioneered and they've gone as kind of the first fruits of it. But I believe there's going to be many that are going to launch to the nations and there's going to be a great harvest. But what I've, what I've recognized just in, in several decades of being connected with youth ministry and missions is that for many of these young ones, there needs to be a birthing out process. So I believe that's one of the things. Second, I believe this season we've been walking through is unto the birthing of apostolic power and revival. I, I want to just read quickly that passage again in, in Romans chapter 8. Paul says, um, I'm going to read verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And, and so Paul doesn't only say the earth is groaning with pains and, and childbirth labor, but that we are groaning for something more, something that we have yet to see, but a day that I believe the Lord is birthing in our midst, where the preaching of the word has power to pierce hearts in a new way. We're laying hands, us in this call, will lay hands on sick ones and see them made well, where we will speak in the name of Jesus and see people miraculously and instantaneously delivered, and where we will see regions where the demonic strongholds that have been rooted there for decades lose their power 
And there's a new ability for people to think clearly and to look rightly upon Jesus and his word. And so I believe we're entering into that birthing where we look at, like Paul says in Romans 8, we look at where we're at. We have the first fruits of the spirit, but my heart and hope, and if there's one thing you walk away from today with, it's that there's so much more available that we, we get to that Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who look at what's available. They see the gap between where they're at now and they respond with blessed are those who mourn. They respond with that mourning, that groaning. I, I think of the picture of Elizabeth, uh, sorry, of Hannah in First in Samuel, where it says that the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had hindered a birthing in her to the point that she began to groan and cry out. And Eli, the priest at the time, is like, lady, you're crazy. You've been, you've been boozing it up so early in the morning. Go back to your house. Da, da, da. She's like, no, like I'm consumed with longing for this birthing of an inheritance and a promise. And I just think of her one life. If she had not been willing to be provoked by where she was at, but what she was made for, like, what would we have missed if we didn't have Samuel? <laughs> Lord, if we didn't have Samuel, we might not have David. We might, it, it just unravels from there. And, and so I feel like we're in that moment where the Lord is like, keep leaning in, keep feeling the pain, keep feeling the gap because I'm going to birth revival in you and through you. And then the third one, and, and I won't get into this one, but this season we've been in of contraction is actually unto the day of the Lord. I'm confident of that. Um, read Isaiah. You can just jot this down. Isaiah 13, 8, 9, Micah 4, 9, and on. You know, but they, they talk about these pains of labor that will come on the earth, and the result of those hours of contraction will be that the skies will be split and the Lord will come back. The great and terrible day. It's, it's great for us, and the labor pain is going to bring the joy that Jesus talked about in John 16. It's terrible for the earth. It's going to be that pain of anguish and agony and just, just all of the fear that's going to be stirring up. And, and so we're in this contraction moment where God is seeking to do a new thing and to birth something in the church. And, and I will just say this last point, and then we're going to look at, at Joseph's life, that in these types of transitional moments, where the Lord is wanting to do a new thing in the earth and in the church, there's great resistance. There's great resistance from within. We discover deeper places in our heart that the Lord wants to refine and touch in our relationships that he wants to bring healing and restoration to. And then there's the resistance from without, um, which you know we've experienced in so many ways this past season. But whether it's politically, whether it's economically, whether it's you know, socially with the, the racial unrest and um, everything else that, that we're under. And my, my heart for us is that we would be a bridge, you know, that we'd be those midwives of sorts that, that help connect the contraction seasons with the birth, that help walk people through these seasons of confusion and uncertainty. And, and I think, Randy, the, the email you sent out yesterday or Friday night, just so timely, the word the Lord is saying to us that you might be the first, but you won't be the only. You, you might be the first. And, and I would say that we, that's, that's not a statement from the Lord's heart to say, 
I feel sorry for you as much as it is to say, this is an honor and a gift I'm giving you to be able to pioneer and lead and go before. But don't worry, there's going to be others that are going to come. And, and so let's, let's flip back now to Psalm 105. I think as we're looking at this season, one of the, the gifts and the mercies of the Lord is that we are not without example in this journey. Um, I, I think primarily of three people, if, if you're like, I don't know what to study in the word right now, study the lives of Joseph, Daniel, and John the Baptist. I believe there's significant things. Daniel, just a blueprint. How do I live with a resolute heart for faithfulness over decades while serving under an ungodly government. I think John the Baptist, just this lifestyle of unusual dedication where he really rises up to meet the resistance of the enemy against a transition, the lifestyle necessary for him to walk in God's power to carry that transition through. And, and today we're gonna dive more into the life of Joseph. And in case you're saying, well, it's it's, already been 45 minutes. Where are we going to get? I, I did warn Randy that I may need a few weeks to get through this and he was good. So we'll see where we get today. And, and if need be, we'll, we'll jump back in next week. But I want to land on Joseph. And, and personally, just over the last month or two, I've been deeply ministered to by the life of Joseph. And, and I believe for us that it holds keys for how God will train, fashion, and prepare men and women leading up to and in the midst of seasons of great transition on the earth. I believe that's really what he's after for us as the bridge. He's forging something. We don't yet see the final result, but he's forging something. And he's saying, if you will stay in that furnace with me, if you'll stay in the contraction with me, that I will bring something precious that is needed, that is a gift to the earth for the days ahead. And so Psalm 105 I'm going to read starting in verse 16. It says, He, God, called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff, the whole supply of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time came that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent him and released him, the ruler of the peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions. Israel also came into Egypt. I'm, I'm cut, cutting ahead a little bit, but the end of the story. Israel came into Egypt, and God caused his people to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their adversaries. And so right away in this passage, we see that it says that Joseph was sent ahead of the activity of God in his generation. He was sent out, he was prepared beforehand with a life that looked and appeared for all intents and purposes lost and wasted until God broke the supply of bread and began changing the season and shifting the position of nations for his purposes. And, and so I, I wanna kinda, as we're looking at the life of Joseph, I wanna tie back into where we were at uh, in January, just the, this message around living in Egypt. Uh, but more specifically, I want to look at Joseph's life and journey from 
the land of Canaan into and as he was living in Egypt. I want to look at a few keys for us in this season. And I'll just share those right right up front and then we'll dig into one or one and a half of those today. <laughs> um, so the, the three keys that, that I really am stirred by from Joseph's life, the first one is remember where this is going. And, and we'll jump into that in a little bit here. The second key is embrace the pruning. And the third that, that will most likely hit next week uh, is to build storehouses. I believe these are three keys for us from Joseph's life. So number one, remember where this is going. Um, I, I don't want to re-preach Randy's message from a few weeks ago, but I do. <laughs> um, I, I, I want to encourage you, and if you weren't on the call, for sure, go back and listen. But Randy gave an, a phenomenal, deeply convicting, but deeply encouraging message around the subject of where do we bury promises? Where do we bury dreams that have seemed to die? And, and the reason I touch that again today is because even in preparing this message, I felt the Lord say that that is not a one Sunday message. That, that is not hear it once, pray into it, get stirred, and, and then let's move on to something else. But that is such a significant key revelation and invitation for this hour is to remember the dreams and the promises. And so as we look at Joseph's life, um, beginning in Genesis 27, for young Joseph, 17 years old at this point in his life, everything began with a dream. Actually, two dreams. In, in Genesis 37 5, it says, Joseph had a dream when he told it to his brothers. They hated him even more. And he said, listen to the dream. And, and he had these two dreams. One was about the, the, the moon and the stars kind of bowing to him. One was about these these stalks of grain bowing before his. And, and, you know, both of these dreams signify that Joseph's family would bow down to him, that they would gather around him, that they'd be in a position of weakness and need before him. And while Joseph was probably way off, and, and we can't really blame him, you know, in his understanding and interpretation of the dream, he would have valued from a little bit of a counsel on how to share that dream with others. Um, you know, but, but for Joseph, it began with this dream where the Lord was showing him the end from the beginning. But as it is with most dreams, 90% of dreams, promises, words that the Lord gives us, they don't play out the way that we thought they will. That the journey looks most of the time nothing like what we expect it to when we're young, when we're full of faith, or even when we're older and full of faith, prior to the difficulty and the pain and the struggle and the delay that comes with the dreams. Most of the time, we hit the dream, we get the dream, and we look at one month, two months, maybe a year of saying, okay, I'm going to go after this. And, and oftentimes, it's almost as if the Lord needs the longer journey to pry our grip off of what we thought it would look like so that we don't reject what he actually has in store for us. Because of the way we understand the promises, the words, the dreams he gives us, 
he, uh, there's actually a process of refining of that understanding that the Lord leads us through so that we can receive what he has for us. So, so here we find Joseph, 17 years old. He shares these dreams with his brothers. We're, we're very familiar with this story. And his brothers are out pasturing the sheep. And his father sends him out to talk to his brothers, to check up on them. It, it says at the beginning of uh, the chapter in verse 2 that he did this. This was a regular responsibility of Joseph. And so Joseph is really kind of naive to what's going on. The scripture tells us his brothers are filled with hatred. They're deeply jealous of him. He was his father's favorite. But he's like, I'm going to go be faithful. I'm going to go do what my dad asked me to do. He went on a journey. It was about a 50-mile journey to go check on his brothers. It wasn't just, hey, you know, go out back behind the house, look in the pasture. They're there. Check on them. It's like, no, pack your supplies. You're going on a journey, multiple days, probably multiple weeks. And his brothers find him. They see him coming. They sell him to this caravan of Ishmaelite traders. And, and I was just thinking about that. I was like, okay, Joseph and these Ishmaelite traders had the same great grandpa. Like these guys were like second cousins in some ways. Um, the, the Moses in writing this narrative, actually he calls them Ishmaelites and Midianites. Either way, those were both descendants of Abraham. So either way, these are family members he finds himself in the midst of as a slave. And, and I just think for Joseph, how often did he think of those dreams? You know, maybe a lot, maybe not at all. But I believe either way, at the beginning of the story, the Lord was giving Joseph a glimpse of where this was headed. That, that as he was having his robe ripped off from his brothers, as he was being thrown into the pit, as he was being sold a slave to make a 300-mile journey through the desert to Egypt, as he was serving in Potiphar's house and, and then becoming you know, an apprentice of ways of leadership and government, only to be accused and thrown back into jail, like through all of these ups and downs, before any of it all, the Lord revealed that he had a plan for Joseph's life. And, and it was a plan of leadership to a the purpose of God, not only to save Egypt, not only to save the family of Jacob, but for the nations of the earth. I want to just, just pull that out one more time from Psalm 105. It says that the Lord sent Joseph before them. Later on, that Israel came into Egypt. And in verse 43, it says, God brought forth his people with joy, his chosen ones with a joyful shout. He gave them into the lands of the nations that they might take possession of the fruit of the people's labor so that they might keep God's statutes, observe his laws, and praise the Lord. It's like Joseph had no idea of any of that when he got started. And so we can't necessarily say, well, Joseph knew the end from the beginning. But for us, we do. I mean, not only we know Joseph's story, but now we've also been told this is what it's unto. And I just imagine Joseph in those, those ups and mostly downs of his journey, you know, how often he was tempted to just look at his dire circumstances, his present difficulties. And I would imagine I would be way worse in it than he was even, you know, we can't blame him, but he's looking at like these momentary afflictions. Whereas if we back up a little bit and we say, what was happening at the 20,000 foot view? You know, we, we begin to see Joseph's life was not only about himself. 
It was not only about his family, but it was about nations. And, and Joseph couldn't fully understand it at the moment, but he didn't have to. He, he didn't have to understand all of the details, all of the nuances. He only needed to give himself faithfully to the season that he was in to see the Lord work and form and fashion what was needed for the season to come. And so as even as God was leading Joseph as a slave into Egypt, Psalm 105 tells us he was actually sending a pioneer. He was sending one who would prepare the way, one who would be a bridge for the purposes of God from one season or one generation to the next. And he would do this by sending one who would shepherd nations and feed nations. And, and I think as I was thinking about that, I couldn't help but be drawn to Jeremiah 3.15, where it says, the Lord says that I will give you, he's speaking of the last days, the moment that we're in. He says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. And so, so I just want to say, remember that you might be the first. You might be that pioneer. You might be that one sent ahead through difficulty, struggle, pain, but you won't be the only. And it's not even about you. It's not about me. It's not about this small company of people called the bridge. It's about much more than that. It's about the ones around us. It's about nations. And so as we begin, you know, looking at Joseph's life, I want to say that, that what we're going through, just like Joseph's life, is for the sake of others. It's for the sake of those around you and those you will probably never even meet. In Genesis 45, 7, Joseph told his brothers at the end of the story, he said, God sent me before you. There's a, there was a moment where Joseph got it. He's like, I was sent beforehand. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. I want to say one more point to this whole, this, this whole idea about remember where it's going. You know, as I think about this hour that we're in, you know, at the end of the day, this moment of wrestle and battle is all about who God is. And that's really what it boils down to. You know, in an hour like what we're going through, and, and I would even say any hour where there's this great contraction of pressure, a groan in the earth, it's an hour where God is seeking to awaken people to the revelation of who he is. But because of that, Satan at the same hour would seek to birth a fresh accusation against the very nature of God. He would, he would seek to tell us and, and plant these doubts, these lies into our minds and hearts that God is stingy, that God withholds, that he doesn't see, that he doesn't act, that he wants to do something but doesn't have the power or that he has the power to do something, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't have the heart to do it. And, and I feel like one of the keys to staying above, you know, this, this idea of remembering the end of the story, one of the ways we do that is by waging a fresh battle on the knowledge of who God is. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 10, where he says the weapons of your warfare, they're not carnal. They're not earthly. We're not fighting with guns and swords and tanks and all of these things, but he says your weapons are divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds and everything that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. And, and I believe that this accusation against God comes in three forms. I, I, I see this in our lives, and I believe Joseph had this as well. 
I believe there's three types of accusation that Joseph faced in his journey that sought to derail him from a destiny and an inheritance. And and so for us, I want to say this not just so we understand or can discern, but so that we can also look at how do we take action against these accusations. I'm going to run through these just quickly, but the first one is accusation against God. In Joseph's life, imagine being basically disowned by your brothers, thrown into a pit, sold as a slave to a foreign land. Like just think of this for a moment, that Joseph undoubtedly faced opportunity to doubt that God was really who he claimed to be. And he faced opportunity to to no longer believe the reality that God saw him. I I have to believe because of the culture and how story-oriented they were that the stories of his great-grandpa Abe were so familiar to Joseph. He knew the stories of God speaking to Abraham, calling him out. He knew the stories of his grandpa Isaac and how God provided a ram and all these miracles that the Lord did. The stories of his father, Jacob, where he, where he saw heaven, this ladder and heaven open and the activity of God and he heard God's voice. He knew these stories. But at this point in his life, Was there a bridge between the tales of old and where he was at and where he was going? And and I feel like for us, that accusation of God that would say, that's not, that wasn't real. That's not really who he is. He doesn't do that anymore. He doesn't see you. He doesn't care about you. You're not part of that story. That part of remembering is reminding ourselves of who God is and of what he's going to do and being a bridge between the two. I, I would say the second type of accusation that is coming against us and that came against Joseph was accusation against others. Not from, but against. That the enemy would seek to derail us by planting in our heart and mind accusations about other people. And and for Joseph, it's like, you know, the thoughts and accusations about his brothers, the facts and details of them were probably right on. (laughs) His brothers did hate him. They did want to get rid of him. But if Joseph would have dwelled on what those thoughts would produce in his heart in terms of emotion, if he would have held on to the bitterness, the offense, the, even the, the self-pity about what had been done to him, those would have poisoned his heart and they would have led him into patterns and cycles of mistrust and broken relationships marked by betrayal, manipulation, and jealousy. If he would have allowed the accusations against his brothers to have full manifestation, there would have been a completely different outcome in this story. We wouldn't have seen him serving faithfully under Potiphar, under Pharaoh. Those relationships would have been ones with deep betrayal, manipulation. Joseph would have tried to play the angles and and, and promote himself and give in to the, the selfish ambition of promotion. I believe Joseph fought accusations in his heart so that he could walk in genuine kindness, in purity of heart, and so that he could serve those around him. And I feel like this is significant for us in the season we're in of of inviting a deep searching, a deep examination of heart from the Spirit to look at where have I believed an accusation against someone else. And it's not even this, what were the facts? 
because we're not called to, to relate to people necessarily based on even the facts of what happened. It's, it's looking at where have I allowed things that are in opposition to the reality that God is ravished by that person. Where have I allowed opposing thoughts and emotions to take root in how I'm looking at other people? And, and the third accusation that I believe that Satan would seek to bring against us right now is accusation about ourselves. And, and I would say this is probably the strongest, probably the most subtle and the most dangerous. And, and if you think about Joseph's life, imagine the thoughts, imagine the ideas that, that are going through his head on that 300 mile journey in the desert as, as he's learning the systems of Potiphar's house, as he's put in jail for several years, at least several years, you know, the, the, the phrases that the enemy would seek to plant, rejected, good for nothing, illegitimate, foreigner, no longer belonging, no place for you, forgotten, as good as dead. I mean, all of these things that would come after him. And, and I feel I, I actually was under this a few weeks ago. I didn't even realize it. And, and just a couple of weeks ago in a prayer time with some friends, the Lord revealed how in this hour, especially for those of us that have said, God, I'm willing to carry your purposes in a very focused way through prayer, through fasting, through community. I feel like the enemy has sought to latch on with an orphan spirit, that orphan spirit that comes so strong in transition seasons, that, that the enemy has sought to derail us from our destiny and our inheritance. It's that whisper or sometimes the shout that says you're not enough. There's not enough for you. The dream was made up. It's, it's really for someone else. You don't have what it takes on and on and on. And, and as I was praying into that, it's like, isn't it interesting that a majority of the men and women that God uses in scripture walked through similar situations and circumstances that gave opportunity for these accusations to hit them? I mean, you can go down the list. It's like almost every one of these people were put out there in a position of vulnerability where the enemy could really just kind of pierce them here and there with these accusations. And as I was thinking about that, as like, could it be that for those who say yes to carrying and birthing the purposes of God, for everyone that's willing, that God will lead them through moments where what I would, I would describe as the orphan spirit can come in strong and we're forced to reckon with our own insecurities, our own areas of pain and our own limitations so that we can encounter God as our heavenly father, as a, as a good daddy, as Abba, like never before. I mean, if we want to look at the pinnacle of examples, we look at Jesus right after this moment of incredible affirmation. It says he went to the wilderness and, and Luke tells us he was led to the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested. It's like the father saw the willingness of Jesus to transition the earth into further, into greater purposes of God for his day, his generation. And because of that, he said, okay, now I'm going to deal with every possibility of accusation. Jesus was hit with the accusation of who God is and what's God, what God has spoken. He was hit with the accusation of, of those around him. And, and he was hit with the accusation of who he was. And could it be that seasons of being uprooted, unsettled, and displaced are actually necessary to bring us to a place where we pass through 
those moments of accusation so that the necessary formation can happen in us to be able to enter and bear under the weight of our inheritance and destiny. I believe so, and I believe that that's a key part of what this past season has been, to uproot us, to get us from our patterns of, of even comfort, familiarity, convenience, so that we can reckon with what do we believe about God, what do we believe about others, what do we believe about ourselves. And as we deal with those three areas, there's a formation that happens within us so that we can move to the next stage of walking into a destiny and inheritance that God has for us. And so it's so crucial that in this season we're in, just like in Joseph's journey, that we remember, we remember the who, we remember the why, why why God has brought us here in the first place, who God is, who he's told us we are, and what he's purposing to do. We've got to keep the end in mind, and I'm going to, I'm going to bring it to a close at this point. We, we've got to keep in mind where this is going. Because if we become so focused on the events, the trials in front of us, we will become discouraged, we'll become weary, we'll listen to the voice that says back off a little bit, ease up a little bit, We'll resign ourselves to lives that, that are mostly responding, that are mostly reactionary, and that are mostly going with the flow of the world around us. We will begin to take our cues from what society and culture tells us is the next step in the dance. But if we remember what we're here for, if we remember that this story ends with the skies being rolled back like a scroll and the beautiful, blazing and glorious Son of God descending to set up his rule and reign on the earth, then we say, okay, I can go another day. I can go another season. I can go another decade to reach after this. But if, but if we lose sight of that, we're so tempted to just say, let's get back to normal. I, I think we all recognize that normal is gone. It's, it's as Randy said last year, it's, it's outlived or outserved its purposes. The church as usual, as we've known it, from our, the days of our childhood, our youth, it's done. But I say thank you, God, for that. Thank you that you're changing the way that the church is expressed and understood because so much of what church was before was meetings. It was programs. And, and there was life in it. I'm not saying it was wrong. But, but I, I love, Pat, you prayed at the beginning. It's like, Jesus, thank you. It's all about your nearness. We're all about your nearness. It's not about a building, though we ask for that. We want that. It's not about structure and format, though we want that. But he's like, there's something bigger going on. And a season like what we've walked through is an opportunity to say, okay, God, I'm here. I'm here. Search me, form me, fashion me. Give me fresh sight for where this is going. I, I think one of the deepest things, you know, we, we've had a different perspective I think in, a, in some ways, having just returned from China before all of this hit, and we were seven years in a context where we didn't enjoy religious liberty, that there wasn't this sense of entitlement. And this is, this is a personal issue, I think, but I think in some ways for most of us, we've felt entitled to religious freedom in our nation. We hear different laws and bills being enacted. And, and because it's a democracy, we have a right and responsibility to, to be involved, 
But above and beyond that, at the end of the day, as we looked at in the series on Egypt, we're aliens. This isn't our final home. And, and so I think we need to examine where have I felt entitled to religious freedom? And perhaps the tide is turning where that's going to be taken. But if so, how do we continue in strength? How do we continue in hearts that would seek to love those around us, to, to honor, to be peacemakers? And, and I think the other thing the Lord's been doing is he's confronting areas of comfort where we've actually, and again, this isn't wrong. God's not against this necessarily, but we've become comfortable with the physical ease and the convenience that life in America affords. And while that's not necessarily condemned, I do believe that God's less interested in those things than we've been. And, and he's seeking for that shift, that remembrance that would realign us with what he's after in this day. I believe he's really after awakening that groan for revival and I, I would even encourage you, begin studying revival. Get a vision for what it looks like. You know, get, get Randy put in a few of the emails, I think, this podcast that Corey Russell and Billy Humphrey do um, called Gripped, all about awakening a groan for revival. Um, read books. You know, Leonard Ravenhill and, and uh, Wallace has a book on the day of the power. And, you know, begin getting a vision of what it could look like where there's a season where the veil thins, where the Father openly displays the power, the glory, the beauty of Jesus, where strongholds, cycles, and systems of sin and bondage over a region are loosed, where the Word of God is, it goes forth in power, where people are deeply convicted and repentant, and Jesus is put on display. And so as we wrap up today, um, I, I my action points were after the next point, but, but I'll just say this. I, I think as we've walked through the past season, the Lord has sovereignly and graciously and mercifully been looking to dislodge us from where we've been so that he could send us beforehand for the sake of others and for the sake of the nations. And, and, and I would say this, to that point of remember where this is going. You know, if, if you need to do it, go back and listen to that message Randy gave about the dreams, where to bury dreams, promises. Um, take time to intentionally pray and ask the Lord to remind you of things he's spoken, of promises he's given. It, it doesn't even have to be a, a, a personal one. It can just be look at the word, find a few promises of what's gonna come in the days ahead. And begin praying into those things. Begin making that part of your daily communication with the Lord. And, and then the second uh, takeaway point I would say is in this transition moment, you know, I think even with the election, like so much accusation was released in our nation. So much. If we're thinking politics, both sides, just accusation, accusation. But take time and examine your heart. Ask the Lord the question, God, where have I believed something about you? that is not true, that's not worthy of who you are. Ask him that about others. God, where have I held on to a wrong or just an assumption, an evaluation of somebody else that has caused me to believe an accusation about their worth, about what you think and feel about them? And, and that one's gonna touch some places. I, I actually really love this topic. If you remember last time I preached you know, we, we just, we're going to go after this. We've got to get our hearts right in relationship. So ask him that. 
and, and then do the work of repentance, the work of blessing that person. And then ask him, Lord, what lies am I believing about who I am, about what you say over my life? And, and sit in that conversation with him over this next week, over the next weeks, so that our hearts can be realigned to the story, what he says, who he is, and what he's doing. And, uh, and we'll jump back in next week and look at how to embrace pruning and how to prepare storehouses. But if I could, let me just pray for us as we kind of wrap up today. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, that in your wisdom, in your kindness and mercy, Lord, that you looked ahead, that you saw not only our lives, but you saw the, the seasons of history and where things are going, and you planted us in this hour. Not even just alone, God, but you brought us together as a spiritual family for this moment, Lord. And so we say today, God, have your way in us. We ask, Lord, that you would take us on that journey. God, that you would do the work of forming and fashioning us. Lord, that, that we would be ones who are made ready and fit to birth your purposes, God, for revival, God, for harvest, for inheritance, for nations, unto the return of your Son. God, give us vision. Lord, I pray for each person on the call today and who will listen to this. Father, that you would lead us on the journey of realigning our hearts with who you are, with what you're doing, with who's around us, and with what you say about us. God, that you would strengthen us to stand against the accusations, to stand against that orphan spirit. Right now, in Jesus' name, I break the power of that spirit that would seek to lie to us, that would seek to belittle God, belittle those around us, belittle who we are in God's sight. Father, I ask that you would wash us afresh, God, with that spirit of adoption that would produce in us, God, that groan that says, Abba, Father. Lord, that if nothing else, that this week we would be led into that prayer, Abba, into that cry to know you, your goodness, your kindness, your tenderness, how generous you are, God. Lead us there, God. Fix our eyes. Reset our focus, God, upon who you are and what you're doing so that we can be those, Lord, who would be sent ahead to prepare the earth for your purposes. Father, I bless those who are with us today. Say, have your way in Jesus' name. Amen.